So they are the villains, and the opposite is America. Because America is now one big gay disco. Yes, yes, I that's not That's not evil? Being hostile to all mankind and subversive is not evil? One big gay disco. Well, I have to say that because St. Paul said the Jews are enemies of the entire human race. What do you think of Jordan Peterson? Uh, did you see the video about where he said, I can't do it? Adam, I'm trying to do you a favor. You're fighting for the gay disco. Don't make your ignorance normative for the rest of it. Don't, don't use those kinds of slurs. You're fighting for the gay disco. What? Are there are no slurs here. piece of driftwood you saw at the beach. Like Maybe you would. And you're consistently refusing to talk about pornography. Uh, Pete Buttigieg yeah. seems to be the exhibit A of that process. Yes, yes. Because you think that the anus is a sex organ, don't you, Pete? Uh, Richard Spencer hands out spears and he says, charge the machine gun nest. Dr. Jones. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not all of the heads of the Federal Reserve were Jews, but after a certain period of time, that seemed to be the case. Good evening, everybody. And here we are again with our most requested guest, Dr. E. Michael Jones. How are you, doctor? It's great, Gemma. It's an honor to be with you and the Irish people today and tonight, depending on where you are. That's and we have lots of visitors as well from joining us from all over the world. But uh, you definitely are, you know, people are saying everything he says is right. Everything he's going to be vindicated about everything that he has been warning about for decades. So uh, I know that doesn't make you feel good, I suppose, does it? Because you don't want to be right about everything you've said, but you are. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, time will tell. Uh, I will be vindicated 500 years from now. People will talk well of me. But uh, until that time, uh, you know, it's going to be a struggle. It, it, we're in the middle of a struggle and you're certainly in the eye of the storm in Ireland. There's no question about it. And I can see that you're having an effect. I was just looking at uh, t- Twitter before we came on all sorts of uh, videos of demonstrations against migrants. Uh, it seems to dominate the whole Irish uh, Twitter scene. Uh, and I think that's largely because of your awakening the Irish people to the threat of weaponized migration. This is not about, uh, you know, love of neighbor, uh, although we cannot ignore love of neighbor and it has to inform everything we do. We're talking about warfare here. And uh, I, I experienced this uh, as, a, as, a young, as a boy, as a young man. I, w- I grew up uh, the first years of my life in an Irish, Irish, an Irish neighborhood in Philadelphia. And we were all ethnically cleansed by black migration uh, from uh, black Protestants who were brought in by the Ford Foundation from North and South Carolina. Now, at that point, they were perceived as the enemy. But in retrospect, I'm starting to I, I understand that they were proxy warriors in a battle that uh, they didn't understand uh, and we didn't understand. So at some point, it would have been effective uh, if we had gotten together and been able to talk to them in the way we talk to each other, because I think Logos, I think Logos is God. And I think whenever you engage in Logos, you're doing God's work. And that's what should have happened, but nobody knew. Nobody had the consciousness. Uh, uh, 
until I wrote the book, <laughs> The uh, Slaughter of Cities, Urban Renewal as Ethnic Cleansing. So that told the story up to that time. No one ever told that story. So now we know it. Now we can proceed we, we, because there's always consciousness is a command of God. We have rising consciousness and it's our duty to spread the word and act on it. Maybe God is testing us, Dr. Mike, because we as Irish, I suppose one of the things we're best known for is spreading the word of Christianity across the world. At least that is the legacy of our monks. Absolutely. And many priests and nuns. But maybe now rather than telling these people, you know, you're our enemy, we should be trying to convert them to Catholicism first and foremost. Absolutely. Secondly, trying to... Uh, make them understand that they have a home which is you know 300 times bigger than ours and but they could go back as catholics because in the in the short term they're going to be here like until we bring down the state the state is the enemy not these people that's right that's right speaking of which uh my good friend uh sister Adela queen uh just spent uh, a month in ireland as a member of the uh, order of the uh, Little Sisters of St. Francis, this uh, courageous woman, Mother Kevin, uh, traveled to Kenya in the 19, I think it was the early 20th century, uh, when that was really uh, terra incognita, that was darkest Africa at that point. And she created an order of nuns that is basically going to take over that order today. So this is an example exact of what you're exactly what you were talking about, about the Irish people spreading the word of God as recent as uh, the 21st century, as recent as a month ago when this Kenyan lady, Sister a, uh, sister Queen, showed up in Ireland and met with the, the nuns who created the order or, or were followers of Mother Kevin and are still there. The youngest nun she found was 82 years old. So that gives you some indication of what's going on there. I think I told you that in a town in Tipperary, 800 years of the Franciscan order came to an end there in the last few weeks. And now this uh, friary, which has been there for eight centuries, is closed. They just have a sign on the door. The friary is now closed. There's talk, of course, of Ukrainians being moved in. So um, it's sad. But look, you know, we, we're going to talk about this now. This is going to be the main theme of our our discussion tonight. But I mean, I think, Michael, the, the point about making, trying to convert these people to Catholicism is to not only to help them, but to, pr to protect our children who are going to be victims of multiculturalism and, you know, race riots. If we don't say right. to these people, we're Catholic and we want you to, to, you know, just like, please don't bring your cultural um, baggage with you from, you know, sadly, many of them come from rape cultures where women are second class citizens and um, murder is rife, etc. So that's why I'm saying it. Yes. Look, I, I, I went to uh, Los Angeles, gave a lecture in Los Angeles 30 years ago, uh, and I wrote an article on uh, the, one of these masters of the universe, it was called the Hispanic Challenge. He was a, a, a WASP a think tank guy. Uh, and uh, he said, we have to convert the Mexicans to American culture, which means uh, sexual liberation, the whole thing. I just saw an article. I warned him. I said, this is the plan. Uh, I warned him 30 years ago. Uh, who knows where, when the word goes out, when it's going to come back, whether, what impression you make. But I just saw uh, an article uh, yesterday, this week, uh, the biggest church in the United States of America is now in the Central Valley of California. They have the biggest parish in the, the country. And it's all of these people, Mexicans, but also all kinds of people who are Catholic and are being assimilated into the United States of America, not as drug dealers or uh, gang bangers, but as Catholics. That is, the, that is the role that the church plays. That is the role the church has always played in this country, including for the Irish. And uh, it's happening. It's happening. 
in in California, no less, which has a very strong Catholic history, of course. So you have all of these people coming in and they brought their residual, not, not residual, they brought their Catholic culture with them. This is the difference between uh, the United States of America and uh, Europe, uh, especially Germany, where you have uh, a large uh, mu Muslim influx. Or, But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because if it's weaponized, it's bad. And it, it is weaponized. This is exactly what happened. So am I saying all those black people from sharecroppers from South Carolina, North Carolina, were they all bad people? Uh, uh, well, who am I to judge? OK, what happened? I, I told the story of my friend uh, Gloria Hardy. She that was the migration route. It was Mississippi to Chicago. When her father went to Chicago, brought, he, he went crazy because he had been held down under the thumb of the segregation system. Now he's making more money in a week than he made in six months as a cotton picker down in Mississippi. And he goes crazy. He goes crazy. He's hanging out in bars. He's doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And the family suffered. This is what happens when you have migration. It, 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 because most people, most people live according to custom. Most people are not moral philosophers. And so they, their idea of right and wrong is from looking around them. So what are they doing? So what are they doing? You know what I mean? And so when you change the culture by migration, they're completely adrift. So I, I saw this, I saw this in Germany. I was in Berlin in the uh, spring of 1975. I'm living with Palestinians. And they were all unhinged because Berlin is one of the most decadent cities in the world. And they came from a puritanic culture and they were unhinged by it. Yeah. This is what happens when you uproot people. And let's be honest here. The people who are uprooting them know that too. They know that these people will be an agent for turmoil. They will be or what, what uh, Marx called the lumpen proletariat. In other words, petty criminals. People who cannot be mobilized for anything. This is exactly what happened in Chicago. So the first thing, when you come, the, uh, the, the kids start growing up, they immediately form gangs in Chicago. Okay, the black gangs and the black gangs are engaged in criminal behavior and they're making life miserable for the Catholic ethnics who were the original inhabitants of these neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago. Guess what? The government knew that. Sergeant Shriver, the brother-in-law of John F. Kennedy, paid these people a million, the, paid the Blackstone Rangers a million dollars. Put it into the hands of a criminal gang because he knew that they were engaged in criminality because it would make the situation impossible for the Catholic ethnics who were living there and they would all leave. And this was the engine of ethnic cleansing. So first of all, there is a natural result of migration, and then it gets doubly weaponized by people who understand it and want to exacerbate it. That's what's going on here. I know an awful lot of people in Ireland. I mean, and another thing that the focus of these migrants, um, the whole purpose of putting them top of the sort of the trending in Ireland Twitter thing is to take away from the enormous numbers of people who are dying as a result of the vaccine. But having said that, you know, I'm glad that it's finally come to the fore, this issue. But people are very desperate. It's very demoralizing, Michael, for the Irish to see this happen to their own home. I mean, when I say to them, everyone has to go back to their country, I mean it because I can't bear to consider another option. Is that at all feasible? If the state collapses... It, they'll have to go back, really, won't they? Because they're feeding off the state. No, if the state collapses, you will have anarchy, and then you'll live in a you'll live in Liberia, or no. We um, have anarchy uh, now. We have anarchy because we've no police force. So we we you know our police force is completely incompetent and corrupt. It's very different to no. No, no wait a minute. That's Chicago. That's what we have in Chicago. I know the cops in Chicago are all quitting. They have a lesbian, a black lesbian mayor uh, who has a big Jewish girlfriend who beats the shit out of her as she gets out of line. Uh, and the cops are called, but we ne they never report that, okay? 
But uh, I talked to the cops who told me that story and they're quitting. They're quitting because law enforcement. So what's happening now is this. You, it is a kind of anarchy spreading through Chicago. Uh, Macy's shut down its store. Wow. Macy's is one of the major uh, retailers. Uh, no, it's probably the well, I don't know who knows what's Amazon now, but the, the major department store in the country had to shut down, shut down, I believe, or in uh, Water Tower Place, which is the upscale mall, because there's too much shoplifting, too much violence. They can't they can't take it anymore. This is this is the the, the way we're heading toward uh, anarchy in, our, in our Chicago. Team. Our police only police the likes of me. You know, they they try and charge us with offences for leaving our county during COVID. So we can forget that we're on our own completely. And they're not not that I would want them to be armed, but they're not armed. So they're not in any way capable of dealing with these these um, Africans out of control at the moment. So something has to give. But the state has brought all of this upon us. The government control the electoral system so there's no hope of electoral change because the system is completely rigged so you know my hope is that the state does collapse and that everyone does then go home because the the free houses and the free stuff comes to an end but that's not why you're on tonight i want to talk to you more specifically about the greatest disaster to befall western civilization and that i think you would agree was the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And so now I want you just to talk us through the early church. And then we're going to get into the meat of how the Reformation led to decades of war and how we are, why the reason why we're in this mess today. So can you just talk us through the first 1500 years? Yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> no, no, can, I, can I can I have a second per century here so I can uh, you can have a second per se- no two seconds I'll give you um, ten seconds it's you see the point I'm trying to make is we had 1500 years of the Catholic Church okay it wasn't perfect but by and large you know and then when they took over and split the church in the way that they did and caused how many thousand of Protestant denominations which don't know what they stand for. Really, the trouble began then. So, but I do want you to like maybe just start with Jesus and the money changers in the temple. Okay, he drove them out of the temple. We know that. Uh, this story started in, in Ireland. Uh, the the actual uh, evangelization of Europe, uh, if by Europe we mean north of the Alps, began in Ireland, and the Irish monks. Uh, first of all, established uh, monasteries in Ireland. And then they started going down up the Rhine and down the Danube, because this was where this was the the main thoroughfare uh, for the Germanic peoples. So you can come in uh, right there. Uh, You can go uh, in uh, the Rhine. You can sail up the Rhine. But the the main focus, I think, was coming down the Danube. uh, And the center of that was Fulda. Uh, the Fulda Gap is there, was cr- crucial during the Cold War. But uh, at this point, these monks would establish monasteries along what used to be the border of the, the northern border of the Roman Empire. So the, there was a senator there during the late Roman uh, Empire. And he said the, uh, the Germans are the saddest people in the world because they don't have grapes and they don't have olives. Well, mm-hmm. they still don't have olives, but they do have grapes. Uh, I told this to a bunch of Amish children. I had the good fortune to teach a class in an Amish school. Uh, These are all uh, German Anabaptists, descendants of German Anabaptists, who were terrorists uh, at a certain point, but now they're all pacifists. Uh, Anyway, I said to them, I said, the only reason that you are a farmer is because of St. Benedict. I said, if it weren't for St. Benedict, you'd still be chasing pigs through the forest. Uh, St. Benedict is the one, and he did this by establishing monasteries, and the monasteries established orchards and vineyards and basically allowed the Germans to create a sedentary lifestyle, uh, agriculture, and and wealth uh, as a result of that. Now, this lasted... Sorry, I'm just showing there the... um, 
the the work of Saint Columbanus, who's probably our most famous saint up, uh, apart from Saint Patrick and Saint Bridget, right? In that you know he really relit the flame of Christianity in continental Europe, founding monasteries in France and in Italy. Right. Uh, after the sacking of Rome, when the the Holy Scriptures had been effectively destroyed, it yes. was the Irish monks that. Yeah, them. At, this, at this point, after the Roman uh, Empire lost its police power, uh, it was overrun by uh, barbarians like my ancestors, my German ancestors. And at this point, it wasn't just it was Vikings from the north. It was Saracens from the south. And the only way you could survive is if someone had a fortress uh, or a castle. Because when they showed up, when the Vikings showed up, everybody had to get into the castle. and just, There was a kind of siege and you had to just wait it out. That's what they had to do. Now, Pesh, Pesh says that uh, this is where the Germans lost their liberty. This is where the German farmer lost their liberty. Because in order to get protection, you had to become a serf. And you had to basically give up the land. And the Lord owned the land. And you worked on the land. And you worked a certain number of days a year. And that's uh, this was before a mon monetary economy. So gradually, he said, because they stayed on the land, they gradually regained power over the land. And they began to uh, have a de facto ownership, even though you could not sell the land. And that's, that remained for a long time in Germany. You could own the land, but you couldn't sell it. And this led to a kind of sta stable uh, lifestyle that was complementary to the Benedictines, who also took a vow of stability. And gradually, uh, the civil, this is where our civilization came from. I, I mean, I, I feel partial here because I'm half Irish and half German, and that's the story that we're talking about right here. It is. So, just before we move in, in a little bit further into to this phase in history, can you just go back? Um, so in, in around 300, Constantine established Christianity as the official language of the Roman Empire, right? Official religion. The, sorry, what did I say? Official religion. And um, so, but those years between the crucifixion and up to that point, you know, what? just talk a little bit about what was happening then with the very early church. What was, what was the, the most significant thing that happened then is that, the Christians had a lot of time to talk to each other and think things over. And this is really different than what happened with Islam. Islam burst on the scene. It was, out, it was about around the middle of the seventh century. They burst on the scene because they were warriors and they conquered everybody. I mean, it was like overnight. It was like the Blitzkrieg back that time. And they suddenly became the ruling force in all of North Africa, all the way over to Persia. They conquered Persia, too, which was a high culture and the Arabs were not. And so as a result, they had to administer immediately. They weren't capable of doing this. They were intellectually not capable. They were uh, camel jockeys and they were goat herders. And that's all they know. Even up to the 1970s, 85 percent of the people in Saudi Arabia earned their living by animal husbandry. Uh, this was a, 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 a culture that was inimical, inimical to thought and inimical to logos and inimical to dialogue. And they ruled by fiat. And basically it was the caliph and God became a, an exalted caliph. And the, all you did was submit. That's what Islam means. You submit, you bow down, you put your head on the ground and you submit to the will of Allah. And that's it, period, whether it's rational or not. Well, the Christians had a different situation. They were a persecuted minority. Persecutions came and went. They basically took over the corrupt culture of Rome. What, what do I mean by the corrupt culture? It was usury had destroyed Roman culture. Uh, the independent farmer had been destroyed because of war, taxation, and usury. And he was now working as a slave on these large farms that were called latifundia. OK, as a result, the, these people had no allegiance to the Roman Empire. It's like America right now. It's an empire. All empires are the same. They want taxes and cannon fodder and you're on your own otherwise. That's what it was in Rome. And so there was no like Kiwis Romanus. Sum. I am a Roman citizen. That, that, that didn't mean anything anymore. 
mm. because you were a slave and you were crushed by debt and and you had no and so what happened is the um, the Christian Christians gave them a new identity they had a new identity it filled that identity gap and they started identifying with each other and they built little communities and gradually these communities became so strong because of the virtues these people practiced that they were ready to take over when the empire collapsed now that's 411 475 depending on how how you want to talk about it. that's four centuries after the death of christ four centuries of just sitting around talking taking care of each other and then during this period of time what they did the great the great achievement during this time was coming up with the doctrine of the trinity i mean this was serious intellectual uh endeavor and if you didn't speak Greek, you were out. You were just not part of the discussion. The Latin bishops were not part of it. People like Augustine were really not part of this dialogue. Uh, but it hammered out something that was absolutely crucial. And we know it was crucial because all we had to do is look where they didn't have this idea. And that was Islam. And the, the, the train of Logos left the station without the Muslims. And they were basically standing on the platform for centuries, largely because of this hostile Arabic attitude toward Logos. It was hostile. And, and Islam became hostile to Logos. And that's like cutting off your nose to spite your face. So Germany, uh, so Rome, finally, after, after waiting for uh, four centuries, they finally take over. Because they're the only order now. And so diocese used to be a, 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 a geographical designation for the Roman Empire. And now it's a designation for the, the Catholic Church. And those Benedictine monasteries were places where you could hide out when the Vikings came or hide out when the Saracens came and then go back to work after they left. And uh, they also produced books. And you had Charlemagne as kind of like the, the culmination of this. Uh, type of development, uh, Benedict, the rule of Benedict, where he writes the rule for this type of thing. And that's what saved civilization, because they passed those books on. Uh, it could not be, classical civilization could not survive this transition. The guy in this regard was Boethius, who was an educated Roman uh, sophisticated culture wrote a great book called The Consolation of Philosophy. And he was murdered by, I think it was Theodoric, because Theodoric was a barbarian. You know, he may have been baptized. I think it was an Arian. But, I mean, uh, he was a barbarian, didn't understand any of this type of stuff. You couldn't, simply couldn't transmit classical culture of the kind that Boethius had anymore. It was Christianity that had some type of immediate implication, rather than the Platonism of Boethius, even though he was very influ influential in the Middle Ages. That's what carried the day until finally... When the when they the barbarian invasion started to they started to you know they stopped because largely because they started to convert to Christianity as well suddenly you had the city the rise of the city and that was the beginning of high civilization so you had Paris but the most important cities were all in uh, Italy these were the city states that made the transition from uh, the what would you say the Dark Ages. Mm -hmm. uh, to the high Middle Ages. And you had the art that went along with it. And if you want to read the, the, the crucial turning point in that regard, it was, uh, I, I cover it in The Dangers of Beauty, where Thomas Aquinas says that existence calls essence into being. A reversal of Platonism based on a, a deep understanding of the fact that uh, uh, the creation creates an incarnational world. Neither Plato nor Aristotle knew that the world had been created. They thought it was eternal. This had an effect on Giotto, who started painting in a completely different way, abandoned the Greek models. And then you've got this huge surge of beauty called, I got in trouble with a lady who said there's no such thing as Italy. These city-states, Florence, Venice, Rome, Bologna, all these places having an enormous burst of creativity in everything. From finance, double-entry bookkeeping came into being in uh, Venice, uh, art, obviously, everyone knows that. Uh, uh, cloth manufacturing, science with a guy like Galileo, there's a beginning of science. 
All of these things grew out of that initial uh, nucleus that was Thomas Aquinas, that was uh, Albert Albertus Magnus, and this type of thing. Now that is an, an enormous, a tremendous step forward of the sort that the world had never seen before. The world had never seen that type of painting. The world had never figured out how to do a double entry book. It was all these uh, Italian city-states that were the cutting edge of Logos in human history at that point. And everything is great, right? Except no, it's not great. And what is the, what is always going to be the problem? Moral decline. Always the problem. It always brings about the collapse of civilization. And so the man who stood up against this in this period was Savonarola. Savonarola, uh, the great reformer in Florence, who basically mobilized, electrified the entire population of Florence with a huge uh, moral reform that took place toward the end of the 15th century, uh, symbolized best by the bonfires of the vanities where Everybody would take things that led them into sin and throw it in the bonfire and burn it. And the, higher, the entire population is swept up in this religious fervor, including Botticelli, who threw his own paintings on the uh, bonfire of the van. Now, we don't know which paintings he threw on, but I suspect he was doing pornography because that's what was happening at that time. And the Medici were promoting that. The Medici were in charge of Florence and uh, they were decadent. And so what is the infallible sign that your culture is decadent? It's sodomy and it's usury, which is the two pillars of our Jewish culture right now. And the man who understood this uh, classically was Dante, who put sodomites and usurers in the same circle in hell. Uh, and everybody's shocked by this, but the, why, why is that? Because the sodomite takes what is fruitful, namely sex, and makes it sterile. And the user takes what is sterile, namely money. Aristotle said money is sterile, and it is, and makes it fruitful through compound interest or usury. Now, this is the culmination. And at this point, Rome should have run up to him and kissed his feet and proclaimed him a saint on the spot. But that's not the way the world works. And so uh, what we had is the Medici uh, collaborating with uh, the sodomites, the usurers, and unfortunately, Pope, uh, the Pope went along with it. Uh, and so they murdered him. He was put to death. It, it, they say he was burned at the stake. He wasn't burned at the stake. They hanged him first, and then they burned his body. And when they burned his body after count, women ran out onto the public square in Florence and gathered up his ashes because they knew he was a saint. And he was a saint. In my humble opinion, the only reason not a saint declared is because of the Jesuits. But that's another story. OK, so what happens here? That was the last warning. OK, this is this is God's warning to the church. You you kill the prophet. You will pay a price. And the price was that the next time it comes around, it's not going to be some saintly uh, Dominican. It's going to be a German on the other side of the Alps, and this man's name is Martin Luther. And this time it's different. So now you've got uh, the Medici. Pope, Pope uh, Leo X was a Medici. And so he says, I'm going to enjoy the papacy. I think God made me this. I'm going to have a good time. And someone said, well, there's this big uprising in Germany. And he says, oh, it's just a quarrel among monks. Well, that was a disastrous misdiagnosis of one of the great cataclysms in uh, European history. Okay, now what, what was the problem here? Okay, we go back 100 years to uh, the Hussite rebellion in Bohemia. Bohemia, Pius II wrote a book about a genius, Silvio uh, Piccolomini, a, Latin, a genius Latinist, brilliant Latinist, wrote a history of Bohemia, and in it he said, basically, 80% of the property was owned by the church. Well, we have something similar all across Europe, and there's a certain group of people now who really do not like this idea. And the, symbol, the symbolic uh, person here would be uh, Ulrich von Hutten, 
uh, who was a contemporary of Martin Luther, a brilliant Latinist himself, but uh, unfortunately a dissolute brilliant Latin, Latinist who had the distinction of being one of the first people in Europe to contract syphilis. The syphilis came to Europe through that army that conquered uh, Venice. Francis I's army marched down the Italian peninsula and spread syphilis wherever it went. Uh, and it was incredibly virulent. Nobody understood what it was. A lot of these people, the story is a lot of these people sailed with Columbus. They came back. They contracted syphilis in the New World because where it came from. And they spread it throughout all of Europe. Ulrich von Hutten's got syphilis. He's trying to cure himself. There's a whole story there. Uh, but he's basically one of those petty nobles who is now being moved out. They are losing their, their social significance because there's a new class of people rising up, and these are the merchants. And the symbol, the best symbol of that would be um, the Fulger family from Augsburg, who were the successors to the Medici for being the papal bankers. So now you've got a new group of people. They are upset. There's all this resentment. There's all this turmoil. The Fuggers are collecting the money for the Holy See from indulgences. And so this becomes a flashpoint, and Luther starts is upset about the indulgences because all that money is bleeding. The gold is bleeding down to Rome, and the Germans are being impoverished. And so what you have is the rise of nationalism. But more importantly, you've got the revenge of the aristocracy. And they see this moment of turmoil, this moment of insecurity as their moment of opportunity. And basically, they steal the Catholic Church. They steal the property of the Catholic Church. Now, this is all that the English Reformation was. It was nothing but a looting operation. It was a looting operation in every Protestant country in Europe. But in Germany, they had a theological uh, veneer of respectability, and that was uh, Martin Luther, who came up with all of these theories, uh, a dissolute man, a man who could never control his passions. If you want to read that part of Martin Luther, read my book, Degenerate Moderns. So he says, so basically... Quotes, be a sinner and sin strongly, but more strongly have faith and rejoice in Christ. Right, right. This is, this is a man who could not control his passions. Mm-hmm. So he was a man who was angry all the time. He was a drunk. And he also, uh, this led him to have difficulty controlling his sexual passions. And so as a result, there, you know, he's, he's now living with a group of nuns uh, who have been liberated, liberated nuns. You know what they're like. Uh, and basically, the Reformation now is not just a looting operation with the petty nobility. It's, it's women's liberation. What do I mean by women's liberation? The Protestant thugs in Germany would basically break into a convent, drag all the women out. Uh, some of them were only too happy to leave and then uh, uh, pimp them. Now, I, I hate to I hate to I know this. My our separated brethren are not going to do this. But uh, Martin Luther, in addition to being a drunk, was a pimp. Now, why do I say that? Because he wrote to the Bishop of Mainz. And said, basically, uh, if you come over to the Reformed Party, we'll give you the best looking nun uh, of the lot here. And we just liberated from liberated from Kloster Nimschen. Uh, Luther uh, was no stranger to this. He, he married one of those nuns. Uh, I don't know what he did before he married her, but uh, at a certain point, there was a lot of scandal there. And uh, so he married her. Now, he did doing this. He broke his vows. And she broke her vows. And so how am I going to get around this? You know, this is not good. Uh, what am I going to? I know. I know. I'll say God made me do it, which is exactly what he did. He wrote uh, the treatise uh, De Servo Arbitrio, which is on the enslaved will. And basically, that was that theology where I sin because God sinned through me. And so the only what I have is I can't control my passions. You can't control your passions. Nobody in Germany can control their passions anymore. You got all these horny nuns and monks running around uh, creating communes like the Anabaptist commune in Munster, which was about 60 miles from where I taught school over there. Nobody, but what we'll have is grace, deep grace, sola gratia, three principles of the Reformation, sola scriptura, only scripture, sola fide, 
faith alone and sola gratia, by grace alone. That These are the pillars of the Reformation, and they all go back to Luther's inability to lead a moral life and control his own passions. So I can't do it. I'm going to run up the white flag, but God will take care of this. He will cover my sins with his grace the way snow covers shit. That was his theology. Yeah. That, that was that was his ex expression, right? Yeah, that. it was. Yeah. So the Germans were always famous for that type of, you know, uh, frank language. Luther created the German language. Uh, his Bible basically created the German language uh, because at that point, uh, as, as a medium of exchange, uh, uh, written language, uh, he had a devastating effect on the Catholic Church. And, and so I've kind of fast forward, okay, well, to the most... Point is, though, at that point, so up until then, we had 1,500, 1,500 years of Catholicism. I think it's really important to say that. And yes, there were corruptions, but what with Luther, everything was thrown out. Aquinas, the saints. Right. This started in England. The English are responsible for this, particularly William of Ockham. Uh, William of Ockham was a nominalist. Nominalism had devastating effect on thought, on logos, on philosophy, uh, because it said basically it was the age of piety. And uh, so the uh, culture split at that point into science and religion. So this is the era when Galileo is coming around. These people, they're, they're talking about the, the universe in a different way. Also a result of Catholicism, also the result of Albertus Magnus, who was the father of science. Okay, and that meant that religion became private. And so private religion means devotional religion. And so you have this kind of split that is not healthy. It's not healthy for the church. And uh, the Jesuit exercises, for example, uh, the, the uh, who was the, the, the Dutchman, the imitation of Christ. This is all this uh, pietism that came out. And Logos kind of disappeared. Where, where, is, where is Logos here? Uh, we, we have lost sight of it. And then Descartes comes along, basically codifies this split by saying there are two realms, the res extensa, which is matter, and the res cogitans, which is uh, mind, and there's really no connection. And that's the world that we grew up in to this day, to this day. So uh, I deal, when I deal with my Iranian friends, I had a long conversation with an Iranian woman, and she was a, a nuclear physicist who got hornswoggled in by her father and the mullahs into a one-year marriage with an Irishman. Well, that's not a good idea. You know, and so you see what I'm saying? You have uh, pious but irrational religion, and you have rational but atheistic science. So which are you going to choose? Well, this is the dilemma basically for the entire world right now, particularly in Iran. Uh, where they never had that philosophy disappeared in Iran because it was too dangerous. Because if, if, if you said something philosophical, the caliph was liable to chop your head off, which is exactly what Saladin did to Suravardi. He got his son who became a disciple of Suravardi, and he told his son, this guy's too dangerous, chop his head off. And that sent a message through the Persian culture. And at that point, they all converted to poetry. And po they have the greatest poetry in the world. Uh, it's part of their identity, but they didn't have this ability to deal with the world in philosophical terms, which is crucial. Practical reason uh, is morality, and that's a big part of philosophy. And if you don't, if, if you're trying to figure out uh, how to, uh, whether you should, uh, how you should act. How do you deal with your sexual passions and all you have to deal with is nuclear physics and one-day marriages? It's not going to work out well. That was precisely the disintegration that took place over this period of time. So, I mean, just to bring this to a close, the, the Adolf Hitler now wants to unite Germany. And the first thing he realizes is half of my people are Protestant and half of them are Catholic. How am I going to do that? And he goes to them and he realized, I can't do it. So the hell with it. I'm going to go back before Christianity. I'm going to go back to the Nibelungen lead. I'm going to go back to Richard Wagner and create my own crazy mythology to unite the German people, which 
spelled disaster for Germany. You see, and he had had a very Catholic upbringing and was very much inspired by the music of Catholicism and the scripture and, and the practice of traditional Catholicism. But obviously then as he, um, you know, his his experience with society, with German society was such as you said, it was too divided religiously. If it ha if the Reformation had not happened, Germany could have potentially won the war and we may not be in the mess that we're in today. Yeah, there's a, lot, that, of, a lot of ifs there. A lot of ifs. And, 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 but, the whole, and part of what I've left out of this whole thing is the tragedy for Ireland. Because what yes. happened when the, the man you really need to read here is Cobbett's History of England and Ireland. Cobbett said for 900 years, England was a Catholic country. And you could go, yeah. uh, the, the wealth of the country was devoted to the people of England through the charitable organizations of the Catholic Church. And so you could go, I think it's six miles, he said, in any direction, and you would find some Catholic institution that would take you in for the night. And if you got sick, they would nurse you back to health. And yeah. all of that disappeared when the, the, the aristocracy decided, I want that property. And that's what the Reformation was. And when they got that property, they drove the, the serfs off the land, they've got no place to live. They got no way of earning a living. They're, they're, they're going to graze sheep now because the Italians would buy up every speck of wool that they could produce in England. And that's how they were going to make money. And the poor people have no way to earn a living. And so they all become robbers and highwaymen. Well, okay, we'll have to pass laws against highwaymen. You know, and, and Belloc says that these people never got recovered until the Industrial Revolution. It was until then when they finally got jobs in those big factories. And that's another whole problem that, that they had to deal with. But this is Tawny. Tawny said about the, they call them the upstart. The upstart aristocracy had their teeth in the carcass. And they weren't going to be ripped off by a sermon. <laughs> that, I, I, that image is just so powerful of a description. That's the Reformation. That was and the upstart closest. The carcass was the Catholic Church. Out of it came all of the Jewish-funded revol Freemasonic revolutions, such as the French Revolution, which a lot of people don't understand at all. They don't understand that it was about secularizing France. And, you know, look at France today. It's an absolute, you know, you, you I mean, you would not be safe in Paris. You know, you know, the main difference between France and England is that they allowed the French people to buy up the church property. Whereas the aristocracy kept it all to themselves. And as a result, you had enormous allegiance to the revolution to this day among certain groups in France because they were bought off, because they were uh, complicit in the looting of the church. But you're right. The English were responsible for this. The basically the the Whig party took power with the glorious revolution. They brought in King Billy the Dutchman simply because he was a Protestant. They would not allow the uh, the the uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie or any of the uh, the loyal the Stuarts uh, to come back. And so Bonnie Prince Charlie got to this Highland Lairds. And they immediately went to his side and they started marching on London. They had Claymore, big two-handed swords, which were deadly at close combat. And they got within 40 miles of London. Uh, and that's when the uh, Cumberland brought cannons over and sword is no match for a cannon. And so they lost. And so that became the, the, the uh, and those people who, uh, the heirs of the defeated, uh, Jacobites uh, were then brought down to uh, Cambridge and Oxford and given education so they could turn them into Englishmen. And Adam Smith was one of the tutors uh, of those people. Uh, he, that was his job as a, a, a Scots Presbyterian uh, to basically uh, initiate these people into the new regime. And the people who didn't weren't the lucky enough, they got sent to places like North and South Carolina as indentured servants and were 
going to be dead within seven years because they were going to be worked to death. And those that didn't get worked to death escaped into the mountains, and that became the Scotch-Irish basis for Appalachian culture uh, up to this day. If England had remained Catholic, is it possible that they would not have carried out a Holocaust against the German people? In the form of this is this is so we're talking about 500 years of hatred of Catholicism, Uh, 500 years of basically people like the Cromwell family. Cromwell lived in a Dominican monastery, and every day he woke up and said, "This is the result. Crime pays. I'm I'm in this house because we stole it from the Catholic Church, and I'm not going to give it back. We're never going to give it back." And that fueled the animosity. That was the early Cromwell. And then that Cromwell went to Ireland. And by the time he got there, he was convinced that these Catholics were subhuman. And he treated them that way. And look at what happened in Drogheda. You know, because what you had was a group of people, oligarchs. The Protestants were the oligarchs of their day. It was an international conspiracy against the people of their own countries. Exactly what we're talking about today. Exactly the situation in Ireland. The Protestant aristocracy viewed their own people, viewed the Irish people as the enemy. Just the way Vatican views the Irish people as their enemy because they are stooges, servants of the oligarchs, servants of the World Economic Forum, and so on and so forth. That's the situation we're in. It's a part of British... You know, the, the the British have this, you see, I think there's no people that are more capable of seeing through the British psyche than the Irish. I really believe that possibly the Germans, but I think the Germans are too beaten down and not they're allowed too beaten to speak. Down. Yeah, they're too they're too beaten down. And they're not allowed to speak. They're not allowed no, to question no. their history or they'll be jailed. But we can. And, and you can, you can now, if you keep this up, you will end up like Germans. You will end up. Yeah, well, like I'm never so. I'll, I'd rather to be dead than be on my knees and and gagged. So, you know, you, but, you will be in a situation where they blew up your pipeline and you don't even ask the question of who blew it up, yeah. because you're so docile and you've been so controlled by your vices. Germany is the whorehouse of Europe. There are more whorehouses in Germany than any place else. This is the result of sexual liberation. You become zombies. You become slaves. That's the German people. Look at Germany. I told the Iranian, <laughs> honey, take off the hijab and pretty soon you're going to be working in a whorehouse. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 incredible because it, it, it takes the likes of me. Obviously, you've been doing it for decades to shine a light on what's what German history is really about, and yet we would be attacked by Germans for daring to question the fact, the reason why they're on their knees in this Absolutely. way. The reason it's it, people would rather be swindled than to be told they were swindled. This is yeah. the, 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 what you're dealing with. I'm saying I have I have contacts in Germany now. The guy said to me, he said, when I understood what you were saying, my whole world fell apart. Yeah, that's what that's what's going to have to happen to Germany. And now and now we're kind of starting at ground zero now and trying to build up and make some type of contact so that they can regain. Look, it's no different. Ireland. You're going to regain your identity the minute you go back to church. That's it. That's another whole complicated story. What happened to the German church? But go ahead. Well, I, you see, the, the point I wanted to make about the British is that, and, that, and the, the fact that we are able to understand them, in that they, they have this superiority complex. And until such time, like they are very smug about the Second World War, Churchill, they will not face up to the atrocities that they committed in the Second World War. And, you know, they're history in relation to colonization, the British Empire, what they did to Ireland. And, you know, in all of this COVID madness, they this superiority complex is coming out on them again. 
And, you know, they see themselves as the sort of arbiters of law and order, restoring order and quoting Nuremberg and Nuremberg II and, you know, the Nazis and all of this. And I really believe that until such time as the British face up to their evil, evil deeds, most of it fu probably fun funded either from the theft of um, Catholic property, but the Jews, mostly the Jews, uh, and to, until the, those links between the Jews and the British are exposed. Yeah, I really blame the Brits for an awful lot of this now, the more I look into this and learn about it. And that's just, I'm well, not just look, saying look, that. Look, Irish... I, I think that the main man responsible for this debacle in the Ukraine is Boris Johnson. Because yep. appar uh, apparently Zelensky, Zelensky was ready to uh, negotiate at the beginning, and Boris Johnson rushes in there and say, no, no, we'll give you weapons. And so you've got this Jew in charge of the Ukraine who's willing to sh fight to the last drop of Ukrainian blood because he doesn't care. He's got Larry Fink of BlackRock waiting in the wings. And what they're going to bring about is the ethnic cleansing of the Ukraine. All the Ukrainians will be driven to Ireland, and then the Jews will come in and buy up everything for pennies on the dollar. That's their homeland. Palestine is not their homeland. They all came from the pale of the settlement. That's that's Odessa. That's all the way up to Vilnius. That's their ancestral homeland. And now they're going to come back after it's been emptied of its native people. Take it over. It's not looking great, is it? It's not looking great at the moment. But, we, you know, as Catholics, we we take solace in in the next life and that we can only do as much as we can here. But it's it's hard to know how we're going to recover from this in this world. By the grace of God, it's the only option left. And God is in charge of human history. And I have to look how you say that. Oh, yeah. OK. OK. I, I've told you I think I've told you the story about the woman on the bridge. Did I tell you that story. Tell us again. So anyway, I'm taking my walk in the afternoon. It's a spring day. The river is really high. It's overflowing its banks. And I get to the bridge, the South Street Bridge, and a black woman comes up to me and she said, do you have a cell phone? And I said, no. And she said, well, I got to call my mama because I'm going to kill myself. And at that point, she hops over the railing and is standing on the ledge. Now, yeah. this, I say God has a plan. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that here is if I left five minutes later or five minutes earlier, I never would have met that woman. So from all eternity, if she left five minutes later or five minutes earlier, she never would have run into me. So from all eternity, there was a plan that the two of us were going to meet on that bridge. Now, at that point, free will kicks in. I could have said, uh, you know, get out of my way, honey. I got uh, I'm uh, work, working on my heart rate. Or she could have said, uh, get out of my way, white boy, and jumped in the river. But that didn't happen. You know what happened? It was Logos. Because we talked to each other. So she got, she's there, and I'm standing behind her, and I'm looking at her, and I'm starting to think, if I grab her, Maybe this will keep her from. And then I thought, you're crazy if you do this. She'll go right into the. I thought of grabbing her pants. The pants would have ripped off immediately because it was this cheap crap, polyester, something or other. So I had to use Logos. I had, I had, that's all we had. So I said, God has a plan for your life. I don't know whether she understood what I was saying. Then she said, I'm going to kill myself because nobody loves me. And I said, well, God has a plan for your life. And at that point, so that's Logos. That's all I have. I did not have physical force. I could not use physical force. But then there's a higher Logos, too. And at that point, I said a prayer. Now, that's Logos, too, because God is Logos, and Logos is God. And at that point, she, she was way past me now. She was on a much narrower ledge. She's got a balustrade between us now. I can't reach her now. And at that point... The cop shows up and she turns around and gets back, climbs back off the ledge, gets in the car. And I never see her again. Wow. Now, that this is now. Do you do you think do you think God had a plan for me? I think he did. 
I mean, from all eternity, I couldn't have planned that. But when it got to the crucial interaction between the two of us, it was pure free will. And not only, so how do you mediate free will through Logos? It was pure Logos. From me talking to her, to me saying a prayer to God, I think intervening in her mind and getting her to turn around and come back off the bridge. I'm saying that's human history. And that's our situation right now. But we've been brought into a situation. We have no control over the situation. But we have, we know what the answer is. And the answer is Logos. Because Logos is God. How that's going to work out, you know, well, you know, 50 years from now, when I'm 170 years old or something like that, I will write the book about it. But I don't know. And so because you don't know, because you can't see any more than 18 inches in front of your face, you have to live by faith. Yeah. Well, it's got us through up until now, and it will continue to sustain us. And it will. it's the only thing that will get us through, our faith. Um, Dr. E. Michael Jones, thank you very much for that incredible potted history. You did it, as I knew you would. And people can watch back again because, I mean, it's worth watching this one probably three or four times. Also, go to culturewars.com to find uh, any of Dr. Jones's books. Everything, and... everything I said today is in better form, in book form. Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, Logos Rising, and Baron Metal, which is the whole history of the rise of capitalism, uh, which was, uh, and that, in that book, I tell the story of the Irish potato famine. So it's all there in books. Go to culturewars.com. Brilliant. And I know there's an awful lot of people waiting for your new book on the Holocaust. You discussed that in your last stream, but you'll probably be talking about it a lot more um, in the run up to its publication, which hopefully will be soon. We'll all be waiting. Yes. Anxiously. Yes. Always a pleasure. Okay. So I think that's everything. Oh, yes. And Dr. Jones, um, your Cozy TV is on at 10 o'clock on a Friday if people want to join and they can also ask questions. So 10 o'clock Irish time, Fridays. Make sure to join that as well. But for now, hopefully you'll be back with me again soon. Thank you so much, Michael. Always a pleasure, Gemma. Good night. God bless. Good night.